welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infield recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark talks to Dan Formosa. Mark and Dan have taken time to reflect on Jane Jacobs' birthday in Washington Square Park, looking at how design in practice is about vision, propositions and great questions. Now, for those of you wondering who Jane Jacobs was, she's the lady who began a protest movement which was the grounds for urban design and the eyes on the streets. And this is Dan Formosa. I'm happy to be here, Mark. Dan, we're sitting in Washington Square Park because there's a couple of significant reasons here. One is that uh, Jane Jacobs' birthday, and the other one is that this square was dramatically changed because of the vision that Jane Jacobs had for the square. And I say, since it's uh, a birthday, we should go celebrate after I, this interview. I think I think that's a very good thing to do. We are sitting here in a park. There is a little bit of ambient noise around it, and that's what these whole field recordings are about. We're, um, we know that they're a little bit rougher than you would have with a normal recording for a podcast, but uh, what we want to make sure is that we're giving you some context of where we are in the world. So, Dan, your expertise started off in industrial design, and now you're involved right across the design spectrum, and particularly you've also got an involvement with the Masters of Branding program, helping with design in that program. Right. Yeah, I got involved in the Masters in Branding program because I was speaking at a conference once where I made the point that branding is dead. And that went over with mixed reviews, but kind of controversial, but I kind of got the crowd on my side. And a couple of weeks later, I got invited to start the Masters in Branding program at School of Visual Arts. Which is really interesting because uh, I keep going back and the listeners would know where I keep talking about the satisfaction equation, which is the expectations and experience being in balance. If the expectations were less than the experience were, you're going to be satisfied. If it's the other way around, your expectations were greater than the experience, you're probably going to be dissatisfied. So there's a mixture of branding, there's communication to set expectations, and there's a mixture of design in there as well to go and actually set what that experience is that people are having. Yeah, and also if you want to be good or great, the minimum requirement is actually to exceed expectations. That's right. And there's a, we also know that if you exceed expectations and you do that on a regular basis, it now becomes the new expectation. So there's, a, there's an interesting quandary there as well. Uh, I know that there's been some upgrades that I've seen in digital systems. And a week after I've um, received the upgrade, it now is the new default and I want more. Yeah, it never stops. I think what's very interesting about uh, design globally is that the more people see good design, the more they expect it. So I often tell companies that I work with that their competition is not their competition. Their competition is everything else in the world that people are exposed to. And that's 100% right. You know, often we think of competition as being somebody who's trying to go challenge us, but uh, seeing we've got humans involved with the things that they're experiencing, they're getting influences from everywhere 
and that might be where the, where we need to go focus on their needs rather than necessarily our contemporaries in the marketplace. Yeah, and the bar gets higher and higher, and I think because the bar is still at some sort of medium level, so there's still lots of improvement in in multiple areas. So, Dan, we've been talking with a, a bunch of design gurus, experts, luminaries around the world about design in the boardroom, and we, we had an interesting uh, pre-discussion, listeners, where we were we were talking about where does branding fit in, where does, de, where does design, where does advertising fit in, and uh, Dan and I both have enough years under our belt that we know those different eras. And uh, we were reflecting that when design first began to pop its head up in helping with the customer experience was in the 1980s. And at that stage there, advertising had a fantastic leverage to go convince people that they should use a product. And I think really the language that design picked up was really an advertising context. And that's changed a little bit now, which is the moment to convince people seems to be more expensive than the moment to serve them. And that, as an insight, is a very interesting point in time. Yeah, well, I'm not sure anyone is listening to advertising and marketing, at least the way they used to. And all the messaging that we're getting for products and services is coming from the bottom up because we are now the media. We now own the media. That wasn't the case uh, just a couple of decades ago where big business and companies own the media. But now what we're reading and what we're writing is is person to person. And we know in 2015 that Microsoft changed CEOs. And they went from being a very engineer, function-based organization to being about a customer experience-designed organization. At the same time, we've seen them reduce their marketing budgets by two-thirds. So we know that they're making products that people now want rather than having to convince people to go buy them. A dramatic change. Yeah, which seems like a much better way to go. Why that did not dawn on Microsoft earlier. But, you know, you get these cultures within a lot of companies, especially engineering-based companies, and there is a division of uh, priorities, I think, between what a design group would typically see would be a ideal solution and what a, maybe an, a more engineering-focused group may want to uh, pursue. Also, listeners, Dan and I were having a chat about if you go think of sports and the way that they pick up different frameworks and different methodologies to achieve their goal, they're very adaptive and they're very open to new ways of achieving what is a single identifiable outcome. And generally in business, we don't have that when it comes to design, mainly because the reference has been that designers had to work out how to go fit its way into a bunch of other paradigms. But organisations that are actually focused on meeting and exceeding their customers' needs and things like net promoter scores, making sure that their sales are increasing, they're getting much closer to actually being able to work out where that single performance moment is. Are we making money? Are we meeting the customers' needs? And are we getting rid of some of the friction that exists for our, for our customers and the experiences of our products? So we've got this interesting moment where if you're framing that there's those simple values, you've now got a very measurable set of goals, which is no different than in the sporting world. Well, I think what's interesting about sports and design for sports is it is very measurable. You know, it's very uh, – you can quantify the improvements. If you make a better tennis racket, your game improves, and you know it uh, relatively soon. 
And we've seen this in this series of interviews that I've done with both with uh, people who are working with the Nike brand and experience and also with New Balance. They've got a very singular focus on what success looks like for them and therefore they're able to go measure, they're able to have sponsorship right from the boardroom down and that they're able to see that they're achieving those goals, which means that maybe it's actually that people need to get some good metrics in place and understand those very simple metrics and then start to pursue those goals. That might be how we actually see them adopt that more human-centered design focus. Yeah, and it may be more difficult in different categories, but what I have noticed about design is in general there have been very few metrics in the world of design, which I think establishes a culture where metrics are a little bit foreign to the profession. You've done a lot of work with medical devices over the years. And I would imagine that improving the design in a medical device, we know that it can have uh, dramatic clinical outcomes, that, that if the you know, work is done properly and efficiently, that uh, the patient is going to get the care that they're after. If somebody miss, misses a step because of some clumsy interaction design, that could have a detrimental clinical impact, but it's not immediate and it's not so obvious. So as against the sporting design where it is immediate and obvious whether you win the game or don't how do you think you tackle it where there's not the same immediacy that we might see in sporting codes or is that a challenge that we haven't yet worked out how to go and decode well some categories are interesting like for instance pharmaceuticals uh the biggest impact you can make in pharmaceuticals is not a new drug it's getting people to take the drugs that they are already prescribed so there is a behavior. You know, one of the frontiers of design, I think, is understanding design and behavior. And even though we can say we've been working at design research for you know, several decades, you know, maybe since the '80s, if not before, I think there is very few. There's, there's not. There's just not enough knowledge in design. You know, the profession has focused a lot on process, which made sense in the '80s and '90s, I think. But what we need to do now, and I think the next wave, is actually adding knowledge to the to design, to the field of design. So when you say knowledge, is that that uh, we need more data or is it we need more frameworks, we need more um, stories to be documented and told from a narrative perspective? What dimensions? Yeah, I think we need a transfer of knowledge, right? I think we need more writing and more um, tabulating, more recording, Uh we know that design affects behavior. We don't know that much about it. And if we did, you know, design is power. I know of a project in, in Australia for the immigration department. The story winds up telling of a 4,000 times speeding up of services for this government department, which sounds reasonably dry and clinical. But then when the story is actually told, the 4,000 time impact was somebody having an amputation or not having an amputation because of the changes that were in the, in the design process. And all of a sudden, because there's that narrative which actually has a dramatic life impact, that number of 4,000 actually just isn't something that's dry anymore. It's actually somebody's mother, it's somebody's auntie, it's somebody's sister who hasn't got an amputation. And all of a sudden it's engaging because there's a human element, there's a story which actually has a dramatic life impact and people will hang to understand, well, how do you actually not amputate a limb on somebody because you improved the government service? Having the capacity to, to tell a story and to put it in something that's an engaging way for people to digest it, 
I think is a really necessary design skill, not just raw clinical numbers like 4,000. Yeah, and one of the things I encourage people to do is not design something for them, but to design something for a very small group of people. I mean, do every, do everything you're doing and thinking about you know 10,000 people, 100,000 people, but also gather a group of five or 10 people that you know and meet and see if whatever you're designing or developing is working for them because you get these very personal stories, you get these very real stories, and you get you, it becomes very much more human and much more real, and you get so much more empathy by thinking about that person and that person and that person if you know and and, and understand that person and their, li- and their lives. And, you know, their personalities may change from day to day. I mean, you know, people are in good moods, bad moods, et cetera, right? Understanding people on a much deeper level and designing for them is really a great litmus test to understand whether or not whatever you're developing is going to work or not work. And... Earlier when, when we were having our pre-discussion, we were talking about the um, 1940s industrial products which had no people around them. And uh, and now we know that most uh, manufactured products in any marketing or advertising that contextualise with humans around them. But most digital interfaces and digital products these days are absent of people as well. So So we're kind of in an evolution of understanding that it's about a human moment, it's about a human experience, and I think we need to keep reminding that that's actually who the people who buy these products are. They're not just credit cards that are attached to a carbon object. It's actually a human being who has emotions and has feelings and needs. Yeah, well, you know, the history of industrial design, uh, if we go back a few decades, it was about understanding how the mechanics of machinery works and what we can produce out of these big behemoth uh, behemoth. Uh, metal stamping machines or woodworking equipment, et cetera. But what we need to do now is understand people. And while a lot of design education uh, says that they're about understanding people, I can ask when I visit design schools or universities, do you have courses in psychology or do you have courses in basic biomechanics? You know, how does the body work? Or how does the brain work? And generally the answer is no. The idea that design education needs a bit of an upgrade seems to be coming out everywhere. You know, it's are there there modules which are helping people to understand business language and being able to go talk to their customer base, their immediate customer base about the performance that this project's uh, creating for the organisation. But then there's also the psychology side and the biomechanics side where if you're making an industrial design product, you should know how the body works. And you should know how the body works across people who are young, people who are adolescents and and changing bodies. And you also need to know people whose bodies are changing on the other side, which is that they're going into the more of the decline side through wear and tear. We sometimes think there's one unified human, don't we? Yeah, well, how the body doesn't work is another hot topic. Well, Dan, what I'm going to do, seeing we've just hit on a hot topic there, I'm going to wrap this conversation up here because I know we're going to have some other conversations, but I really appreciate you giving us some time and doing it here in Washington Square Park gives us an opportunity to reflect that you can have a huge vision and you can make a big change to society, but you need to have passion and tenacity. Right. It definitely helps. Thank you very much for your time, Dan. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark.